Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Thank you, KD. We appreciate you and what you do. I am excited about the show tonight. We have someone that I've known for years. And I remember I was talking to her. I was like, you know what, Teresa? I don't even know what you do. All I know is you make a lot of money and you're the boss and you're the CEO. And she said, Calvin, it's okay. But when I began to think about this segment of supervisor, the CEO, I'm like, who can cover this topic? And Teresa called, uh, Teresa came to mind. I called her up and she said, Calvin, I got you. Thank you for the village. Thank you, Teresa, for being here. Let me unmute you. How you doing? I am wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm ready for this conversation. And uh, you are not alone because I have friends that have been my friends for 30 something years and they still don't know what I do. They call me Thomasina as in Tommy. <laughs> and uh, they still don't know what I do. So this is this will be good. And I have some family members here. Thank you all for joining and some friends. And thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we will try to behave ourselves tonight so um, we don't um, get you in trouble with your family and friends. So, you know, here at Soul Thursday, we like to really find what we call the community gems. You know, those people who are out there doing what we call that black excellence in the community. But a lot of times people don't know about it. So when I really thought about this topic, right, CEO, supervisor, CEO, I thought about Teresa. And Teresa, what I want to do is just get started and help us get to know you. Do you mind telling us what we call your origin story? you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, the things you study. Tell us about you and how you got started on your journey. Definitely. I am a grits girl, girl raised in the South by way of um, Greenville, South Carolina. I grew up in Greenville, but my parents are from, and I lived a few years of my life in a small town in the low country, South Carolina, called Ridgeland, South Carolina, very close to Hilton Head Island. Uh, I was in my second grade year of uh, moving to Greenville, uh, my, I have uh, a blended family. Two fathers are both educators. And I was the oldest of that blended family, oldest sibling, and also the oldest to grandchild to graduate from both sides of, of, of the family side, the family, um, father and mother. So I uh, had a lot of a lot of expectations, especially from an education side. It was no expect, no, it was a no choice, but to get your education and as much of it so that you can elevate yourself in the family from generation to generation. So um, graduated from Malden High School, might be a familiar school. Uh, Kevin Garnett graduated from there and then went to Chicago. And it was a predominantly white school. We did live in the suburbs and it taught me a lot about how to navigate and really work within diverse parameters of a setting where you're the only. And I, I know a lot of you have stories about diversity and things you've gone through. Well, I went to the school of hard knocks at an early age and growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and predominantly white school being the only in the classroom, being the only on a cheerleading squad, being the only in, on the softball team. 
and not really forming myself under a click. I'm not a click person. So I think my leadership style is such that I'm very collaborative in that. And from my upbringing, I was able to transfer that into the corporate world and be a little bit more successful from going through a whole lot of that mess. So um, graduated from modern high school and then decided I love music. I went to the Fine Arts Center my junior year, wanted to be an opera singer. And I started off at the University of South Carolina and my freshman year majoring in some music classes, had music classes. And I said, you know what? (laughs) This is so competitive. And I don't want to stay with my parents all my life if this doesn't work out. So let me go ahead and switch my major and have something to fall back on. And that landed me in the engineering department. I chose mechanical engineering because it was a very broad field to work in and navigate. And uh, my junior year, I said, I'm not going to be an engineer. It taught me a lot. It taught me about discipline because I didn't have a a lot of great study skills in high school. And it really taught me how to think, how to think strategically. I have a flow chart in my head versus, you know, having all these things, all these things jumbled up. So it did do me well, especially in thinking about strategy. So I said, well, instead of changing my major to back to music or a teaching degree or a math degree, as a black female, let me go ahead and get this mechanical engineering degree. And that's what I did and did not know until I started substitute teaching for my dad, who taught science and in math at um, at high school and at an a alternative school where they kick people out in the day school. And it was a, a night school program. I caught the teaching bug, but I knew that I was not going to be working in the school system because I already made more money working side jobs than, than a teacher in the school system. So. Um, So I didn't know. I was like, all right, so let's just give this engineering thing a try. I interned with the BMW plant in Greenville Spartanburg at the time. One year, I gave them one year and then I left and found a job at Harley Davidson Motor Company, five states away from South Carolina to Pennsylvania. Didn't know anybody. And I had so much against, against me living there because I was the first African-American supervisor they ever had and um, African-American female supervisor they ever had. Uh, It was a union environment. I never worked in a union before. I was young, female, black, experienced, and cocky. (laughs) I was going to tell you what to do because I'm smart. Uh, That didn't work too much. I didn't know who a union steward was. It was a fish out of water for me. It changed my life and career. I was able to form relationships with a couple of people. One was my manager at the time who became my mentor. Didn't know that he would be my mentor until um, he started giving me little extra things to do. At first, I thought he was singling me out because, you know, I'm the little black girl. (laughs) Um, But he taught me a lot about principle-centered leadership. He taught me about how to build relationships, how to persuade. They don't teach you that in engineering. They teach you how to be smart. He taught me about emotional intelligence, how to be smart in your emotions and how to manage your emotions and how to read the room. So he actually was a middle-aged white guy from by God, West Virginia, who was trying to make it in his leadership program as well. So we bonded and 
how I knew that he was my mentor. And this was not anything that I was placed with. It was half something that happened just fluidly. And I was, I told Calvin, you know, that people ask me to teach mentorship training all the time. And I, I don't want to do it because of my experience. It has to happen fluidly. It has to happen without you being assigned someone in my experience. And he, um, an example, one thing that stood out is he had me do my first performance review five times. Everyone else was writing and copy and pasting and changing data and p- turning in their performance reviews. And he asked me to do it over and I said, you're picking on me, you're singling me out, this is harassment, you know what the union people say. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm trying to help you, just stick with me, just stick with me. So he made me write it five times and it was more of a narrative that explained my journey toward being in this place that I didn't know and I had to learn and build relationships and all of the things that I accomplished in that one year, reducing scrap by 20%, forming these relationships with the union, and uh, increasing productivity by so many percent. So it, um, after I turned that in, two weeks later, I was asked to interview for a position in the training department that was non-traditional and not posted. He already knew that this was going to happen, but he couldn't share that with me. So he wanted me to present myself on paper just as if someone is right, was right in front of me talking. So when that happened, they offered me the job And that's where my training, the teaching book starts to come back around again. And they offered me the job to facilitate training for 600 assembly workers. And that was my beginning of the whole people development career. And I was able to get a certification that I did not even know was as big as it was until like seven years ago. It's a DDI certification. They paid $15,000 for it back in the day. And it allowed me to teach about 120 classes for this certification. So there was so much growth that I was getting. And then um, I ended up leaving, my mentor left. I ended up leaving six months later. The union was really running things, canceling training. I'd go back to being a supervisor. They uh, have training continue. Uh, Did not see where my career was going. So I was able to find a position in, in North Carolina as a plant manager of 350 employees over three shifts was the best of both worlds because my analytical skills and manufacturing skills could be honed with my training skills as well. And 9-11 happened and we had to lay off 75 people, the hardest thing I ever had to do in my career. I knew whose spouse was pregnant, whose kid was going to college for the first time, whose uh, spouse had already been laid off. Very uh, tough moment for me. At the time I was working on my MBA and my mentor calls me, my mentor from Harley, what are you doing? I said, I'm about to, just got laid off, I'm about to finish my MBA. He said, good, need you in Atlanta for Simmons Mattress as a director for training. So I'm moving with him again to Atlanta. And I had a dotted line to another mentor of mine at Harley that was in HR. And for about three and a half years, we were rocking and rolling did a lot of great initiatives. Uh, the biggest budget I ever had in training was, was about $3 million there. And the, um, the highlight of that position was we were able to get on the Ford's 100 best companies to work for, for the first time in almost a hundred year history of the company. And that was a, a proud moment. Um, what also was a big 
turning point for me was I held the highest position as an African-American female again, going back to the only. But we're in Atlanta. We should have executives. We should have VPs in this company. And everywhere I went, I, I was responsible for 23 facilities. Everywhere I went and visited, they, I was almost kind of felt like a rock star or the weight of the African-American community was on my shoulders. Like, oh, we heard about you. We need to talk to you. I said, I'm in training. I'm not in employee relations <laughs> just because you say HR. So they wanted to pull me in because there was an instant trust by how I looked and how I how I moved in the organization. Um, I had to watch what I said. My eyes dotted, T's crossed. It was a very stressful moment for me and that how I spoke was representation of the whole community within within that within that company of who, who I was as being an African-American female. Um, the company sold and we ended up having the opportunity to get a cash out. So the company turned turned down, returned from the worst, a lot of, lot of politics with the change of, of the culture. And that what to me gave me the, the, the actual advantage to go out on my own. I'm single, not married. And I told myself, well, I need this amount of money to do this on my own. I I had no doubts that. Hmm? I said, you know, I got so many questions. (laughs) I mean, it all now makes sense because in knowing you, I see you doing these things that have different skill sets, right? I see, for example, you being comfortable with finance over here, but you're comfortable with leading in the room. And you're comfortable with training. But then when you talk about your background, where you started in a music study and you're like, no, 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 no. I'm just going to pick something easy. I'm going to pick this mechanical engineering. And then you kind of, you know, find what I I don't know what to call it, fortune, where all of these things begin to kind of, you know, come together for you. But what I love about your story is you've been extremely successful. You've been Opportunity after opportunity, but at the same time, I think something's going to change, right? There's a feeling of maybe you keep doing this or maybe you do something different. Tell us what happens next, because I'm thinking, you know, you could stay in corporate for the rest of your life, be successful, be promoted, but something else was going on. Tell us about that. Right. Each year, each position I had, um, Harley going from a supervisor to a trainer, in assembly that was within 10 months. Um, I was losing focus because I was not given a lot of challenge for that position. Moving on, um, was promoted within 11 months of the next company, got bored. I achieved everything I needed to, actually exceeded everything I needed to. And I was, I was, too, I was growing the, uh, outside of the company too fast for the company to keep up with. And I was bored. I was not feeling challenged. There was one time that I did convince the company, uh, one, one of the companies to actually give me a position that I said that was greatly needed. And that was that lasted maybe about six months and I achieved that. So I felt I always needed to do something more and I didn't want to feel like I was in a box or feel like I was limited. So each position that I held was roughly around three to three and a half years. Mm-hmm. So moving from Pennsylvania, North Carolina, now Atlanta. And I had the opportunity to, to have this cushion financially because that's always a good thing. I can't go back to mom and daddy. 
this, to have that cushion and to do what I wanted to do. So being an entrepreneur or having multiple eggs in my baskets, multiple companies to work with, multiple clients was a dream come true. And gradually I built that and my mentor became the CEO of, of a company and we were able, I was able to be his, uh, a client for him that started off my career as a, a CEO of my company about 19 years ago. And that gave me the, um, the fortitude to actually build from there. Let's let's talk about that pivot because I, I, I like a few things that you said. I like a lot, uh, pretty much everything you said, but there's a key themes that I'm noticing. I was just talking to Lady J about this concept of MBAs and entrepreneurs and how people may have the book knowledge, but they don't really have the grit, right, for entrepreneurship. But then at the same time, you pivot from corporate, which is a whole different world, to entrepreneurship. How, I mean, how did that happen? Because I, I got two questions. One, one, I can see it being scary. I can see it being like, how do you do that? Because to me, it's like two different worlds. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, another thing that I've seen in your story is mentorship after mentorship after mentorship. So I really want to kind of hear two, two questions. First, do you mind telling us about mentorship and how you feel that that's important to not only your career development, but other people's career development? And two, how did this help you really pivot from a highly successful career to entrepreneurship, where you're leading your own, paying all your bills. As I say, you take out the trash, you pay the bills, the light bill, you're doing everything. That's scary, especially when you've been in corporate for a while where all you got to do is do your job. Now you step into entrepreneurship where you got to do it all. Tell us about mentorship to tell us about the pivot. Well, the mentorship for me was one that um, it was like Mark, his name is Mark, my mentor, um, he was strategically planning for my development without me knowing about it. And um, gave you the example of me becoming a trainer and him grooming me with this performance review. There were thing, other things he was doing in the background. Like he knew when he became the CEO that I was gonna be a client of his. I didn't know it at the time, but he knew it. And um, he was planning for that. He was actually grooming his executive leadership team to be convinced that we need development of people. And I have a perfect person who knows how to do this because he grew me for that at Harley and at Simmons. And he knew, I knew what he wanted and he knew what I wanted. But from a diversity standpoint too, um, he knew what I could do and say that he couldn't and vice versa. A white guy who's a CEO can do things that I can't can call the shots, but a me being a black woman who can collaborate with people in any setting. And by the way, I'm an engineer, but I'm not a typical engineer. A lot of engineers are introverted. They don't like people, they're reserved. I'm extroverted. I'm about data and people. So in a room, in a meeting, I can understand every single person. And when they're confused, I can break it down where people, all everyone can understand. That was the niche that I found that I had from a sweet spot perspective of growing people. So Right now in my business, my sweet spot is taking an engineer who's an individual contributor or someone who's technically minded and growing him into a great leader of people and having a good team, having them be very team oriented. And because I had to go through that and I know the gaps that are that need to be filled to get you there. So um, with that whole entrepreneur thing, it kind of happened gradually. I learned a lot. I had to go back to corporate America once. Okay. That I was in 2007 
when the housing market took a dose, a, a nosedive and a lot of layoffs were happening, I had to decide to either invest in sales or go back into corporate America for a few years. But my aha moment there is you cannot act as if you're in corporate and running your own business. You have three roles, doing the business itself, being the visionary of the business and managing the business doing those invoices, going um, going to networking events, doing the actual training in the classroom, that day-to-day, you assume three roles. And there's a book called The E-Myth or The Entrepreneurial Myth that I did read, which is a great book if you're thinking about going into business for yourself. It is, it's not as simple as you think it is. There are roles that you have that you, will not, that you have to assume and assume well or either get someone to do that well that you won't have have the responsibility of in working for a company. So that was my aha moment that, wow, okay, so I have to keep planning. I have to have this strategy, think four steps ahead of where I am now. And um, I was able to do that with the help of my mentor and providing the strategy and then working with him for about a year. And then he left the company and they asked, asked me to continue being a consultant. So that was a that was a cool thing because a lot of times people, when people leave, everybody goes with them. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. You know, a couple more questions as we transition to Dr. Booth. And this is a good time for the audience. If you have any questions for Teresa, type them in the chat and we'll try to get to them. And Teresa will definitely respond. So, Teresa, what I would like to hear is thank you for sharing that, by the way. And I just kind of looked at time. So excuse me for that. But. What I I love is that that transition, you talked about a few things. You talked about relationships. You talked about mentoring, grooming. You talked about being, as as you say, that really smart person who, right, going to boss people around. You talked about, hey, you know, I think you're picking on me. But then I'll see this opportunity of you were surrounded by visionaries in addition to you were qualified. You have the engineering background. You have the people. You have the soft skills. You have the hard skills. So you're highly talented and they see you. One of your stories that I highly value is a story where, let's say they didn't see you so well. You have a seat at the table. You're leading these meetings, but they don't hear you. Tell us about that challenge, that experience, and what it taught you about navigating situations such as glass ceilings or sitting at the table, but invisible. Mm. It's all about allies and advocates. Um, when I was promoted at Harley as the team development or trainer, I was a part of a, a, organi- or a team called the Operations Leadership Team, OLT. And I was at the table with about 10 other middle-aged white men who had fought, fought for like 15 years to be at that table. Now I'm at the table after 10 months of being with the organization. Not only am I at the table, but I'm facilitating the team meetings. And as I'm facilitating, I'm interjecting my ideas and I'm not I'm not being listened to. And so sometimes after the meeting, my mentor and another advocate, his name was Harry, we would get together in a in a in a room and just kind of chop it up. And I voiced my opinion. I said, I really need for y'all to be transparent. Am I just the token black female on this team because you need color or what am I? Am I going to be an asset to you? Tell me and I will play the part until I get bored and move on. <laughs> so, so we had a very transparent come to Jesus meeting and they were shocked. <laughs> and why do you feel this way? 
because this, this, and this. And so I said, I want you to really observe the next meeting. They observed the next meeting. I said, okay, there might be some things here and there. I said, well, did you remember what I brought up as an idea? They said, vaguely, I said, Harry, I want you to bring up the same idea the next meeting and see what happens. He brought up the, net, the same idea and it was the best thing since sliced bread. So after the meeting, they said, okay, we, we see now. We see that there's, there's some issues here. I was able to then um, go to this training in Atlanta because I was in Pennsylvania at the time. It was called African Supervisory Skills for African-American Professionals. And at the time, Coca-Cola was going through a lot of diversity issues. A lot of the managers were in my class. It was a, um, what was it called? AMA, I think AMA class for a week. And it made me feel like I was not alone, that everybody, a lot of people were going through this and I was not crazy. I took the information and I uh, went back and met with Harry and my mentor and we we came up with a plan on how they were going to be advocates and allies for me going forward. And it taught my mentor a lot about what what's in my world <laughs> because he only has his lens. I needed him to understand my lens. And um, ever since then, he has become an ally and um, a real true advocate for me. As a, as a white male, that's very important for him to have been educated at 28 years ago from that. So. Um, that is what I continue to do is teach people that difference matters. And if we focus on the people, the numbers are going to come, but you have to focus on all people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, tell, tell us about this as we wrap up. Tell us about your company, um, what you do, because I know you have various ser- service offerings and um, how they can find you. There's also a, a question in the book about the book um, you mentioned and the three things that you have to do, because I just want to get you to repeat that for the recording. But tell us about your company, how we can support you, how we can follow you. And if you don't mind, remind us about that book you mentioned. Awesome. So my company is Cummings Consulting and Management, LLC. We are uh, operated in Alpharetta, Georgia. We have been around for 19 years. We are a woman-owned minority business, and we specialize in coaching, training, consulting and instructional design for organizations and government. And we are uh, also under the SAMS.gov, under the government. My, my challenge and strategy is to be more in the government space in the next five years. But companies I have worked with are BMW, NASA, CDC, Synchrony Bank. Who else? I've worked with uh, Xfinity Comcast. Who else? Let's see. <laughs> with the projects that I have currently. I um, also am working with Boeing, starting a project next week. Um, let's see, who else? There's lots of corporate companies. Uh, my government companies, I guess you could say that's NASA as well, but uh, I am um, a, cl- a client of mine is the USDA. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Teresa, for hanging out with us. I shared your website in the chat. That's Cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S-C-M.com. You can follow Teresa. You can also connect with her on LinkedIn. That's Teresa Cummings. And any last um, um, words, anything you want to share with us um, um, before we transition to Dr. Booth? 
No, just continue to grow. If you have any questions, you can, I will put my email in the chat and we can go from there. Thank you for your time. Awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I love mentoring. I love playing it forward. I love the story. You know, one of the things that I've, I've heard recently is the nuance of how it can be hard for people, definitely women, to find those mentors. The people who actually are sincere in supporting them navigate these hurdles. I like the story that Teresa tells about having a seat at the table yet being invisible at that table. And I like how she began to build relationships to help her navigate her career pivot from supervisor to CEO. Next up, we have Dr. Booth. What's up, lady? How are you doing? I am great. Thanks for asking. What do you think about Teresa? I mean, sister girl is, do I mean, who goes from music to engineering and be like, yeah, I just need something to fall back on. Who does that, right? <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> but but I love the story. I mean, what, what do you think about Teresa? Um, I mean, it's absolutely amazing, um, especially I love the, the part about the mentor, because it shows that you just never know who can be that person for you, because sometimes they're like, well, if they look like me and they sound like me, then that must be my person. But sometimes someone else can come through and be an ally. And they can actually help assist you and especially a true ally, someone who's willing to listen to you and to be able to say, OK, I see it from your point of view. And these are some changes that we need to make. Yeah, I, I think that's very beautiful. And, and I picked that up in a story because I kept listening to the story. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't think this is a brother. Right. So, you know, for her to be able to navigate that, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. But I am excited about this segment, Dr. Booth, and I tell you why. As one of the first um, shows we did in season one, we started talking about shows that I saw my father or my son's grandparents experiencing. You know, shows like Newly Retired, Now What? Shows like, you know, what happens when you're a working class boomer and you're experiencing mental health problems? What happens when you're trying to get access to quality health care? I sit down with you and you just broke it down. But I don't want to ruin the surprise. I would love Dr. Booth, Dr. Ashley Booth. Tell us about you, who you are, and tell us your origin story, please. Sure. So um, before I get started, have my village here today. A lot of my family and friends showed up. So I wanted to, you know, personally thank them and say thanks for showing up and supporting on today. And again, thank you for having me. But um, long story short, I was born and raised in what I consider a small town in Arkansas. And this town was about community, like true community. You look out for your neighbor. You make sure everybody is OK. Uh, I had some great educators. I would tell them this is what I want to do. And they were like, listen, this little girl wants to do this. We are going to find a way to make sure that she gets there. And at some point I said I wanted to be a doctor. Now, I have no idea when that exact moment showed up. It could have been like little pieces here and there. I was one of the people who helped out my grandmother and took care of her, would go over to her house and put her little medicines in the little dispensers and give her her insulin injections and poke her finger. None of that stuff grossed me out. I was like, this just has to be done. This is what I have to do. I would go with her to her doctor's visit. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I think some of those started to plant the seeds. And I said, this is what I want to do. Teacher said, OK, we're going to figure out how to get you there. My parents, super supportive, 
but they were small business owners. And they say, we, we are here for you. Of course, they pushed education, but they said, financially, we may not be able to foot this entire bill. So keep doing what you're doing and try to get as many scholarships and stuff as you can. And I said, okay. And I did that. Got the scholarships, applied to colleges, and mainly wanted to stay in state because I figured that would help out. So I do what I feel like is my due diligence and I view a college and I said, this is where I want to go. I get there and there were a lot of students of color that were there and they looked like they were happy. So I was like, okay, I can come here. And I get there and I go to the biology department and I look around, I said, wait a minute. There are like 300 students sitting in the auditorium and out of that only five to 10 were students of color or were black. And I was like, wait, what, what happened? But I'm like, okay, it's okay. That kind of got to me. It was like culture shock. It's going to college for the first time and being away from home. That was an adjustment. And I've never been one to parents have to say, do your homework, do your homework. I always did that, but I will admit like my focus for school was off. Like I just wasn't fully into it. So first semester, I make a B in biology, a C in chemistry, and an A, A's and everything else. And I go to my advisor and he says, no medical school will take you with these grades. And I was like, you know what? He's right. That wasn't my best. I'm gonna get it together. So I focus and I'm ready. I go back for the next semester. I make all A's, an A in biology, an A in chemistry. So I know I'm gonna get a good report. And I go to him and I said, I did it, you know, I'm ready. And he says, that is very good but no school will take you. And I was like, what? Like I did all of this and they still like for a B and a C. My thing is my educators had been my guide all this time. So I'm thinking he knows. I've heard medical school is hard and it's tough. So I know that he must be telling the truth. I had no one else to go to. I had no one to, to help me navigate this. So I'm thinking that he's, he's telling the truth. And, and then he says, why don't you go to the business department? Well, first of all, I'm thinking business, like that doesn't even make sense. I don't, I'm not even really in the business mindset right now. Then the second thing that came to me was like, wait a minute, that's where all the black kids are. At least most of the black students were in the business department. So I was like, well, you know, so that started to mess with my mind. But anyway, I continue, I stay in the biology department, but I'm not fully pursuing it. And it was an extremely dark time for me in college. Like it was not the fun that I was expecting. And I'm just going through the motions and I'm like, I'll get the degree, but I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'll figure it out. I get to my fourth year and I'm working really hard in one of the toughest classes. And the professor sees my work ethic and he says, yeah, you can go to medical school. And I was mm -hmm. like, excuse me. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, now mind you, I get a C in this class, one of the hardest C's I ever worked for in my life. And this guy is telling me with the C that I actually fully focused for and got, he says, yeah, you can go, but it's my fourth year. I haven't applied. I haven't taken the MCAT. I haven't done any interviews. I should have done all of that stuff by now because I'll be graduating soon. And that's my next step. That's where I'm supposed to go. So I'm like, okay. I mean, it was great to know this, but I'm not prepared. So I go ahead and I, um, I take the MCAT, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to prepare for this test. And I fail, fail miserably. 
And I'm like, okay, now what I do? Well, I get married <laughs> and I moved to Georgia, but my mom tells me, and she she's whispering in my ear, don't forget the dream. Don't forget the goal. Don't forget what you are supposed to do. So I'm like, okay, move to Georgia. I find out about a program at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. They say you'll get a master's degree, but they will also prepare you for medical school. I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. And it did. It was a magical time. Met some great, wonderful people that I'm still friends with to today. But like they also gave me a solid education. I was a lot more confident. I was like, I am ready. I can do this. So I'm confident. Apply to medical schools. There was a medical school right back in my town. So my husband and I don't have to do this long distance anymore because he was still in he was still in Georgia while I was in Virginia. So we don't have to do this long distance anymore. I can go to school like within five minutes from my home. This is perfect, right? Then I read the brochure. I go and I interview and I see a little bit. But when I read the brochure, we love diversity. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Well, I show up. I am the only African-American student on that campus. And not just in my class, for years. Wow. So now it's messing with me again. I'm like, hold up. You got to be kidding me. I'm mad because I was like, you said you pride yourselves on diversity and I don't see it. Well, then my husband says, well, do you know what diversity means? And I was like, well, you should be able to see it. Blah, blah. He was like, no, diversity means whatever their little criteria is. And basically, if you came from certain parts of the state, then that was considered diversity for them. So you don't have to see it. You just have to come from these different parts. So I am upset and I let that get me off focus, but I get through it. I finish. And my professors, like, they helped me. Like, they still tried to do as much as they could for me, but there's only so much. But I did feel supported, you know, as much as I could there. I graduate between residency and medical school. I was pregnant, so I had a baby and I took some time off. And while I'm taking this time off, I'm enjoying my baby, but then I match in residency in Mississippi of all places. I'm in Georgia and I match in Jackson, Mississippi. And I'm like, how's this gonna work? Because that's nine hours away. Well, my husband says, well, we just have to do what we have to do. And he knew it's only three years. So it didn't make sense because he was far enough along in his career. It didn't make sense for him to up and leave for three years and then try to come back. So we're, we're just gonna do this long distance thing again. So I take my nine-month-old baby to Jackson, Mississippi. And on the way there, people are saying, Mississippi, oh my God, <laughs> that's going to be horrible. They're going to be so racist and it's going to be backwards and da da So I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how this is going to work. But I was like, girl, you got to do what you got to do. Just go on down there and figure it out. So I get there. Soon as I get to Mississippi, like I feel welcomed. Like there was like a welcoming energy there. I get into my orientation and I see all of these students and residents of color. Then I go into different departments and I see all of these attendings that are of color or they're black. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't even see this in my medical school career. So 
I was like super excited. I'm like, hey, girl, what's your name? And I know a lot of these people thought I was crazy because I'm just going up to them because like I didn't see any of me when I was in med school. So like I would go up, girl, what's your name? Okay, I'm going to add you to my phone. I'm trying to get a little group together and stuff. And so I know they thought I was crazy, but I absolutely loved Mississippi. The people were great. Still have some great friends and supporters that are there. Got a great education and training. Um, And with that training, that first year, they allow you a whole hour with the patient. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I get you to sit down, talk to them. We chit chat, figure out what's going on. Then by the time you get to the third year, they say, okay, you need to see about four patients an hour because we need to get you prepared for the real world. And I'm starting to feel it. And I was like, I'm uncomfortable with this. I feel rushed. I'm rushing into the room. I'm rushing out of the room. My patients feel like I'm rushed. And then they always, at the end, sometimes give me that, oh, by the way. And I'm like, by the way, what? I like and it's like, I'm having chest pain. So then I have to address that. And so that's when it started with the whole burnout. Go ahead, Calvin. Well, I, I like that statement because I know, as you mentioned before, it's like, you, you start with the hour, then they, they cut you down to 30 minutes or 15 minutes, right? 15 minutes real world. And the way you described it before, you like patients tipping the weight to the last minute to tell you what's really going on with them. So the significance is that you rush and they got you on a 15 minute schedule and somebody says, hey, but continue because I, I love this moment because it's a transformative moment. Yeah, because in that moment, that minute is usually that most important minute of the meeting. You could talk to them about everything in the beginning, but that last one is the, oh, by the way, I've been having chest pain. Well, you can't disregard chest pain, okay? Because what is it? Is it heartburn? Or are you having a heart attack? Is your heart having issues? Like there's a whole lot of differentials that go there. So I have to spend time with that. But then that also now puts me behind and, and then I have to go to the next person. I have to oh, say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I have to catch up and stuff. So it caused me to feel this weight. And I said, if this is the way that medicine is going to be, I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue this. Now I fought to get to this point, but then I'm like, this is, this is what I get. So I'm a little conflicted, but I was like, girl, you got to figure it out. So I finished residency, moved back to Georgia, and I get a position in a clinic because I always wanted to do outpatient medicine, which is basically in a clinic. I get to the clinic, and it is a, a new clinic in our area. It's a new company, so they're trying to establish themselves. Well, then, because of that, it worked great for me because I get a chance to see one patient an hour because we weren't busy. So now I'm like, oh, I get a chance to go back to the chit-chat and stuff again. Enjoyed it. Got a chance to know my patients. And they start to know me really well, but it was short lived because this company was not able to get off the ground because they told me once we get off the ground, your expectation is 20 patients a day, at least. So I always felt that in the back. I was like, this is not going to be forever. Like this is just short term and you're going to have to, it's going to speed up, but it didn't get off the ground. And I was like, okay, that's fine. What else are you going to do? But then I interviewed at areas around town and I said, well, what is your expectation for me? And they said 15, at least 20 patients a day. And I said, well, 20 patients a day. How about I do like 15? They're like, no, I said, I'm willing to take a pay cut and I'll just see 15. That way I have more time with my patients, blah, blah, blah. They're like, no, you need to see at least 20. And my spirit and soul just started to die. And I was like, I cannot 
do this and do this well and be well enough for my patients and you know I have enough to give to them and serve them well. So then that's when I said, well, you got to do it on your own. And I started my own medical practice and it's called Healing Beyond the Stethoscope Primary Care. And I named it that because I believe that care extends beyond the stethoscope. Like I look at all of my patients. I look at everything that is going on with them. And then in order to do that, I spend 30 minutes to an hour with them. So that way, and their time is their time. I don't schedule anybody else. So we're not rushed. And they have access to me. They can call me. They can email. They can text. So when they get a text, it's like, oh, I'm texting the doctor. And I'm like, yes, you are. So, um, But that helps to build the relationship. But it also helps to make it all make sense because I tell people all the time, life affects your health. And so I have to be able to put all of that together to make sure that you are totally well. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, such a beautiful story. And I love it because you stayed the course. And as I said in the chat, they're, they're, they're noticing your mother whispering, right? Remember the dream, remember the promise. And I like how you continue to listen right, to that small voice that tells you what to do in that discomfort. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking as a man, I'm like, man, what is her husband doing? That brother is supportive, right? He's like, we got to do this. Up, And then I'm thinking about the point where you're like, well, I guess I'm going to take less patient and I'm thinking less money. I'm like, Lord, this man, uh, you know, I'm praying. I don't even know the brother. I'm praying for him, right? <laughs> so, but it's beautiful, right? Because you're doing the right thing. And initially when we sat down, I began to think about this show. I said, well, it sounds like she's doing the traditional medicine. I'm saying that, you know, the old fashioned, you know, the doctor stops, spend quality time with you, check on your family. It's like she's doing traditional medicine in a contemporary time. But tell us more about, you know, how your um, your office, how Healing Beyond the Stethoscope begins to prioritize accessibility and affordability by at the same time maintaining high standards of medical excellence. Like, how do you guys do that? Like, how do you guys prioritize that? Well, the thing is, I always, because I grew up in that small town and had that community feel like that has never left me. And I always want to get to know people. Like, I need to know more about your story. I need to know where do you work? Because when I look at it, I think of a treatment plan. I don't think about, oh, well, you have high blood pressure. I need to just start you on this. I think about, okay, you have high blood pressure. This medicine is indicated, but there's also some other options. But you are a truck driver and you're in your car all day and you can't make stops like that. So me putting you on a diuretic makes no sense. So that's how we do it. We make sure that we put the patient first. We figure out like, what do you want? What do you need? And how can we serve you and make sure that you get what you need? So I just take into take a lot of those things into consideration because the other thing that I found out is that treatment plans look beautiful on paper, but if a patient is not following it, then what sense does it make? And so I said, we have to figure out what that connection is. And a lot of times I get patients from other offices and they said, you know, I went to that doctor, he ain't do nothing or she didn't do nothing. I say, nothing? And they was like, no. And I was like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do because of your symptoms. And then I'm going to get your records from your old doctor, make sure I'm not missing anything, whatever. And they're like, okay. And I explained to them, this is why we're doing it. And this is, oh, okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. If you have any side effects or this is to, to be expected and blah, blah, blah. They're like, okay. I get the records from the old doctor. I compare our treatment plans. They're pretty much the same. So it's not because 
of the treatment per se, it's the trust behind the treatment. So then me being able to talk to them and have that access and, and, and that's what I tell them. If you're experiencing something weird, you don't understand, text me, email me, call me, whatever. So we can figure it out. Cause I don't want you to stop getting treatment and making sure that you're well, um, because you don't quite understand what's going on. Uh, you know, I, I think I just got it because like you said, uh, um, the treatments look good on paper, but if the patient doesn't trust the doctor, then they don't follow the treatment, which means they don't get well. So now I begin to understand the quality time that you're spending with the patient allows not only for you to get to know them better, but for them to begin to develop a certain sort of trust in your, sensor, in, in your sincerity that allows them to do what they need to do to get better. And, you know, it just hit me because I was like, oh, well, like you said, it was the same treatment plan. And I'm pretty sure you have other stories like that that you can share. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it happens quite frequently. And that's one of the reasons why I started my social media pages. I do a, a weekly YouTube and I either will have a doctor to come on and discuss something that I know my patients are interested in or I will do a talk. And it's all because education. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I have patients that will come in, they'll tell me something like, mm -mm, that's not right. And so then it was like, no. And I'm like, no, let's let's talk about it. Let's break it down. They're like, oh, OK. And I can see that light bulb come on. And then they're like, OK, now that makes sense. OK, now I'll do it. So I'm like, if you are dealing with that and you're thinking about that, then I know some other people are thinking about it the same way. So then I was like, how can I get this information into more hands? Because I know for a fact and I've seen it that once patients understand, then they're more empowered and then they're more willing to do what it is that they need to do. Yes, 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 indeed. I, I mean, I, I love that because, I mean, misinformation is real. I, I can't remember who I was talking to about misinformation, and hopefully you can share with us some examples, right, of the things that people get confused on and get stuck on. Do you have any examples you can share with us of misinformation? Oh, my gosh. It is. Um, <laughs> there was one. I don't want to get too graphic, but I know one of the doctors who joined me on one of my um uh, lives and she's on here today and we talked about birth control and so she and I were talking about some of the misconceptions and like the pool and pray method and so a lot of people feel like oh well I'm fine or I'll just do my calendar I'll just do this and it's like let's let's talk about like really what's going to happen because we have quite a few adults who say well I'll just do that or they say I don't want any children but then you say are you using protection and I say uh-uh oh, so it was like, well, then you want children. No, I don't want any more kids. I had a gentleman that came in my office just the other day. He talked about financially how he was stressed out because he has two children that are around the same age. And he was like, and I'm really trying to provide for them. And I said, well, do you want any more like right now today? And he said, no, but I need my STD screening because I don't put on, I don't wear a condom. And I was like, Okay, let we got to have a conversation because if you are not protecting yourself, you can have babies and you've proven that at least twice that you can do that. Oh, yeah. Dr. Rhonda Maddox, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, thank you for giving a shout out to Dr. Rhonda. Dr. Rhonda is awesome. She was on the show recently and I can only imagine the two of you getting together having a very, very candid conversation about these nuances. You know, I, I, I really I love it. I really love it. Tell us this. Um, 
what's next for you guys, you know, at Beyond Health Healing Beyond the, the Stethoscope? You know, it seems like you're building your social media platform. You're making sure that you use opportunities to educate, to address stigmas. What's next for you guys at Healing Beyond the Stethoscope? Sure. Now, Dr. Rhonda is on, but the person that I actually would cut up with, too, is Dr. Jalene Sims. So she's on and that's the person that did the birth control talk with me. Um, but what's next for Healing Beyond the Stethoscope and just for Dr. Ashley Booth in general is just continuing to put out more information so that patients are well informed so that they are healthier and they are able to get better. So I really want to make sure that I start to continue to put out more information. So please follow and like and subscribe and share and all that stuff so that you can get the information that you need. If you know someone that is in our area that is in need of great health care, then we are still accepting new patients. So then patients can still come and join our practice. But that's what's next. Awesome. Awesome. What I want to do is pivot to questions because I'm pretty sure the audience has some cool questions for you. And um, if Teresa, if you're still here, also, we can give you an opportunity to kind of fill some questions. But Katie likes to ask the first question, y'all. So I'm going to let her go first. And in the meantime, audience, let's spend some time chatting with Dr. Booth. Awesome story. I want to kind of pause for a second. I got tons of questions, but I think there's so much opportunity here. But Katie, let us know what you think and what questions do you have? Actually, I know you're not going to believe this. I don't have a question. I just have such deep admiration for both of the speakers. Oh. Um, I really, really do. Um, the name Healing Beyond, let me make sure I get it right, Healing Beyond the Stethoscope. Um, that just says so much. I just, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being here tonight. And I mean, I honestly hope that we get the opportunity to really promote what it is that she's talking about in terms of real holistic care for our community. So Again, um, many, many thanks. And yeah. no question. Awesome. Yeah, you know, when I began to speak to her, I just got excited about, you know, this. Some people know the term, what do they call it? Um, restorative medicine, right? Where, you know, it's not just, you know, taking the blood pressure pills for the rest of your life. It's really working to get you off the blood pressure, the medicine, to get you to a place where you have a better life. And as she began to talk, I was like, she's doing this restorative medicine in her own way. And it's so beautiful because it's so consistent with her story. So as I begin to think about it, it just, you know, it just gives me chills, right? Because often you hear the other stories, the stories are, well, you can't and the system's too big or whatever, but she did it and she's doing it. So I just think that's very, very, very awesome. Very beautiful. Let's go to the audience. Let's see what we can get. Um, so questions from the audience. Let's see. Let's see yeah. if we can get Dr. Sims. One of the things I do wonder is like, what can we as individuals do, right? I mean, as non-doctors, what is it that we can do to really promote um, people taking care of themselves? I mean, how do we do that in a way that doesn't seem preachy um, or too heavy handed or, you know, standing on our own soapbox? I always wonder that, right? Because we, we have information, but I can never figure out how do I share it with people that I know need it? Now, you're correct. It can it can get tricky, I think, the from the place that it's coming from, because that's how I try to approach my patients. I try not to be preachy with them. I'm like, listen, are you OK for us to talk about this? Because one of the most touchiest subjects is weight. A lot of my patients do not want to get on that scale. And I was like, listen, I'm not going to tell your business. I just need to see and know where we are so I can figure out. And I was like, if you don't want to talk about weight today, that's fine. You didn't come in here to talk about it. But know that we will at some point. 
But I try to make it a comfortable environment for them first and then approach it. Hey, are you are you ready to talk about like patients who smoke? I say you're you didn't come in here for your smoking today. I know that you do smoke. I know that it is connected to some of these other health issues that you have. You say you don't want to touch it today. I'm not going to touch it. But just know I'm going to touch it at some point. And they're like, okay, just not today. And I say, okay. And then I'll circle back around to them a little bit later. And that's how I approach it. So I think if you bring it up and say, hey, are you okay with this? And then seeing where they are, because they're not going to accept it unless they're ready. Uh, thank you so much. That that helps somebody like me that just like says this stuff, no filter, right? But are you okay? <laughs> what are talking about this? Um, we do have a question from the audience. One person asked, how accurate is the BMI for African-Americans? And oh, I, I love that question, Lord. No, because I'm big boned at y'all. So. I'm big boned at you. <laughs> Oh, big bone did. Okay, that's something else we got to talk about. But there is another skill and it escapes me right now, but they they do have one for like ethnicities and stuff because we do carry our weights in other areas. And so they're trying to say, okay, because it just came out not too long ago and I saw it. Um, and so I would have to, it escapes me now, but they're, they are saying, okay, is the regular BMI that we're using for everyone else, is that totally accurate for like African-Americans and other people who carry their weight and stuff? Now, sometimes like if you have a lot of weight in the mid area, then that weight is just, it's not good for you. No matter which BMI scale I put you on. If you're, if you're carrying weight in your midsection, then that is where we notice that you're having the issues that that fat is depositing there, the fat has issues with like estrogen and all this kind of stuff. And it leads to other issues like diabetes, high blood pressure. So then that's one of the areas you really do want to focus on, whether we're looking at one scale or the other. So it's not baby fat. It's just fat, baby, is what you're telling. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, um, Let's see. There's another question. Let's see what Deidre says. She says, it sounds like things aligned. Well, this is more of an observation. Things aligned um, for both of your trajectories. Um, Journey has not been that easy. How do I go about succinctly pitching my business and building a client base? She coaches HR HR consulting, public speaking, and facilitation. Her audience will um, be membership association churches and synagogues and some corporate. So I think Deidre has a great question. And Deidre is awesome. She was on the show a few weeks, but she's like, hey, she's had a different journey, right? She, she's probably at that place I like to call the messy middle. Any advice we would give Deidre as she begins to essentially begin to grow and scale her business? You want to go first, Teresa? Yes, um, you are very similar to me. And I will offer you a one hour talk so that we can go deeper into this. And um, just email me at the email address that I have um, because you are also the winner of the whole trivia thing as well. So I'll gift you a one hour uh, session to dig deeper into this. Um, uh, Fortunately, thank God, I have not been, I would have not had to market. It's been people who I've known in all the the jobs that I've had, people who know that I, what I do, people who are, actually referring me (laughs) to others that I don't even know that they're doing. So having that good circle of people that understand what you do and know what you do, focusing on the audience that you're trying to attract, having Facebook and a a marketing strategy on social media platforms that don't really focus on the audience that you're trying to get 
doesn't do much, but if you focus on distinctly the audience that you're trying to have and build from there, um, that's helpful too. Uh, we talked about mentorship. Go there. Um, churches, I don't have a lot of knowledge. I know that some churches have big budgets and some don't. So from a monetary perspective, you might be given some, um, what they call it, some kind donations. <laughs> so I don't know if, I don't know if that's going to pay your bills, but there might be people within the church that are CEOs and VPs that you can leverage some of that. Uh, one of my, one of the people that I used to study, his name is Joel Barker. His definition of a leader is a leader is a person you follow in a place you wouldn't want to go by yourself. He was the one that created the term paradigm shift for corporate America. He didn't create it, but he made it popular. So I was able to meet him. He's like a rock star. And how he got his start was going to nonprofit organizations like United Way. Um, um, I forgot some other ones that he had, but they were big. And they, he said, I will train and consult you for you for free. There's one thing that I need you to do. I need your board of directors to be present. Well, who's on the board of directors? CEOs and top executives of these corporations. And that's how he got his start to work with people like the Googles and the Microsofts and the HPs of the world. So he, he got his start by giving of himself for free, but making sure that the people that he needed to talk to was in the room. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, five more minutes with our speaker before we transition to our wrap up. Well, we got K-Boogie with his tribute to Prince in addition to, um, um, yes, we're going to finalize the winner for tonight. But I do have a question for the audience. I mean, not for the audience, for the speakers. I happen to know that uh, COVID was a tough time for many businesses. And I remember talking to Teresa around that time and, 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 and it just it was a curveball for many people. Any advice or any lessons learned that you guys gained coming out of COVID where you maybe adjusted your strategy, adjusted your business? Tell us about, you know, some of those lessons learned from the COVID time frame for entrepreneurs, because if I think about it and I hadn't thought about it until now. That both of you are entrepreneurs in your own way. And it's just kind of cool to see both of you build on the dream based on your passion and your skills. But how did COVID affect that? How did it touch your business? I didn't work for six months when COVID came. A lot of my colleagues went back to working nine to five jobs that were consultants. But I have a woman called, her name is Helen Cummings. She's in the room. She uh -oh. is my mama and she taught mama. me all about saving. She grew up in the banking industry. My first job, she gave me a, uh, my first paycheck of my first job at 15, she gave me a check deposit slip, a savings deposit slip and a tithing envelope, my first paycheck and said, you gotta give to three of these entities every single paycheck. If she didn't get, get me the first paycheck of my whole life, I would have been ruined. She taught me how to save, how to plan for a rainy day, a plan A, plan B. So I have at least a year ahead because mm -hmm. I know how fickle this industry is. I know how people have gone back to work because they can't hold down their job or their company. So you've got to live not above your means. I live below my means and I was able to survive for the six months, but also I had to shift. Most of my work, 95% was in person 
I was going to com- consultants' locations. I had to sh- quickly shift to virtual. And and what I do with coaching, what I do with training, all of that. And it took me about six, seven months to do that. But I am blessed to have had the knowledge to not live above my, my means like my mama taught me. So I did listen, mama. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Booth, anything you would like to add on how your business shifted during that time? Sure. Even before COVID hit, I always was thinking about my patients. They wouldn't come in. like, And I was like, I haven't seen you for a few months. We needed to follow up. Why didn't you show up? Oh, I had to work. And I said, okay, well, we got to figure out like how we can still touch bases, even if you work. So I was already thinking about, okay, how can I get these people in? But at the time I was working for another company, then COVID hit. And although I'm working for this, this major company, they had nothing in place. So we had to figure it out ourselves. And then they, they offered one of the offices like telemedicine visits. They didn't offer it for my office. And I was like, okay, why can't I do it? And they, they couldn't give me a good excuse. So I, Again, I figured it out myself and I was like, I'm still going to be able to touch bases with my patients. The most I could do was telephone calls because I, I couldn't use the other um, uh, other system because it wasn't as secure. So I would call and check in and stuff like that. And I was like, once I, if I could do this myself, I know there's another way to do it. So now that's why I offer video visits. They can text, email, call. So I'm like, if you guys can get in contact with me, then I don't know what else I can do or what I need to do. But even before then, I knew like just the society is changing. People's lifestyles are changing and we have to do something else to really make it accessible so people can still get what they need. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, this has been an awesome conversation tonight. And Katie, you know, it's like it even feels different than the average show. And I can't even put my 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 mind on it now. But as I begin to think about tonight and reflect on it, I begin to have butterflies and just as butterflies from the testimonies, from the the courage, from the family love between this theme. And I just want to thank you, Teresa, for being here tonight and sharing with us your story, your encouragement, your challenges and your fears. And I like the way you communicate because you begin to talk about you know, uh, um, they say favor, I mean, fortune favors the prepared, right? And it just seems like there was so many things in place. And it, it, and for some, it may look like luck or fortune, but I could just see the favor, right? The, the As you say, mama told me how to save. And then, you know, and, and as Dr. Booth would say, mama said, remember the dream. And I began to see these things that it kind of come away. But, you know, I'm proud because I can only imagine as the audience listens and the people continue to listen to this replay, how they begin to see and gain the encouragement. Dr. Booth, thank you for being you. And we wanna say here at Soul Thursdays, thank you for doing what you do. Because we often talk about the gaps, we talk about the problems. And we don't get a chance to see a lot of people like you who have been so, so focused on doing this thing your way based on the first time when a person said you can't do it. I know people who those guidance counselors, those advisors really discouraged them. They got in their spirit and it stayed there for 50, 60 years, the belief that they couldn't do it. But it's something about you and the way you're made that you persisted. And as you say that one professor, he saw your hard work ethic. He said, something about hard work. I'm, I'm a country boy, right? So, you know, I work hard. I'm like, I don't worry about the rest. You said you made a C, but you work for that C. And I love that, right? 
Because at the end of the day, we now know as adults, it's like it, it's really about the work you put in it. Right. And then you go and you get into these programs. And then I love when you get to Mississippi, as I say, Mississippi. And, and you start hugging black folks. They're like, what's wrong with her? Like, for real? <laughs> like, like, like why, why is she hugging black folks? I'm, I'm sure you made the people nervous, but they still appreciate you nonetheless. So I just want to say thank you for being you. Thank you for sharing your story. We're going to transition to, let's see if I can unmute uh, K Boogie. K Boogie, go ahead and talk, talk to us to tonight. Let me talk to you. Set up. I have to turn you off. Turn you off. Becca, look, both of these women have so much peace. That's what, that's the one thing that comes across to me is that they are just, it, it just feels like so much peace is just surrounding them and just so much wisdom coming from them. So I'd like to say thank you again. I'm just, I'm just happy to be just in your presence virtually. Thank you, women. Yeah, I, I'm still going to um, give Teresa a hard time talking about she's an opera singer. Like, well, you know, I was just going to go and be an opera singer and I just changed my mind and I decided to be like, who does that? Right. And, and, and for the family out there, y'all know she's special. Now, come on, who does that? Who goes from opera to be like, well, I'm just going to be an engineer and do my thing? Nobody. Uh, you got to eat. You said you got to eat. And I like eating. <laughs> she said, I got to eat. And you know, I think it's something about college. When you get just a little hungry in college, it's just, just a little bit. You don't need a lot. In that little hungry in college, I think she probably experienced a little of that. But uh Thank you guys for being here tonight. I want to let you guys know as K Boogie comes online about the next show we got next week. If it's your first time here at Show Thursday, I want to say thank you guys for being here. Everything we do is supported by volunteers like Katie when she comes to work. And uh, But everything we do is through our campaign, the Buy Us a Coffee campaign. And what we say is that if you see on the screen, you have a code and you can actually, you know, um, click that code. And I'm going to send you a link also in the chat where you can support what the work we do here. Oh, Tamika is online. Thank you, Tamika. I knew she, boy, everybody at work tonight. Hey, Tamika. Tamika has just put in the chat how you guys can support the work we do uh, through PayPal, through um, Buy Us a Cup of Coffee campaign. And what I love about our Buy Us a Cup of Coffee campaign, click on that link and you will see the testimonies. You will see the message that people who donate, they leave behind messages of why they appreciate the work we do here at Soul Thursdays. And y'all, we are so excited about the work we do. We're in the process of applying for our second grant. We got a grant a couple months ago, but we're not stopping there. Next stopping year, we there. have next that we're planning. In addition to, we will be submitting our next grant coming up pretty soon because the work we do here is supported by the social proof. And the evidence, when you donate that $5, yeah, we bougie, we like Starbucks coffee, right? When you support that $5 and put comments in, that creates what we call social proof. Evidence that we just not here because we look good. We here because we create value. So thank you guys for being here tonight. Any last words, Katie? Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.